This is Defender Radio. Defender Radio is brought to you by the Association for the Protection of Fur-Bearing Animals. It's the week of October 17, 2016, and this is Michael Howie welcoming you to episode 402 of Defender Radio. You may have noticed things look and sound a little different, and that's because we've given Defender Radio a bit of an update as we grow to meet a broader audience around the world. But rest assured, the same integrity, quality, and newsworthy interviews will still be found here every week. To start out with this new look and feel, I brought back an old friend, Raincoast Conservation Foundation's Kyle Artell. Have you ever been at a party, or maybe a bar, having a perfectly normal conversation with a seemingly nice individual, when they suddenly say, It's true, I read it in the news. Or, Yeah, but evolution is just a theory. Or, heaven forbid, But Trump does have the facts on his side. The groan you just involuntarily made? That was your brain trying to escape your body. Joking aside, it does seem that much of society has lost its grip on what words like facts or theories actually mean, and how they should and shouldn't be used. It becomes particularly concerning, however, when these words get used incorrectly in popular media or in discussions about policy affecting wildlife and the environment. Even amongst advocates, we see misuse of scientific terms, or arguments that simply aren't as strong as they could be due to an inability to properly engage with the scientific community. Fortunately, education is always possible, and that's why Defender Radio connected with biologist and doctoral candidate Kyle Artell to review the bare facts of the scientific method. To start out, why don't we sort of look at you, uh, just, just to give this some context, your background started like when you got into science, because uh, that's really the, the broad theme we're looking at, of course, is science, the scientific process, the scientific method. So how did you get into, the, I guess, the business of science? Right. I, well, I guess, so I, I was doing an undergrad um, at UVic and, and Camosun College uh, in Victoria, BC, and Towards the end of my undergrad degree, I started working um, with a professor, Dr. Reimkin, uh, at UVic. Uh, and I was sort of always fascinated by bears, and he'd done a lot of work on bears. Um, so I approached him about that, and uh, we ended up instead working on dog behavior, which is a, a really cool little um, uh, almost parenthetical <laughs> beginning to my my research. So I did a bit of work on on, on dog behavior, and then from there I met... Uh, Chris Daremont, who works with Raincoast, um, started doing a bit of field work uh, on the coast up here, uh, Bella Bella Heltzik Territory, uh, where we do this non-invasive research monitoring black and grizzly bear populations in the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, so I joined that in 2010 as, as a research tech and uh, kind of fell in love with the area, uh, with the work, um, and uh, have been doing it ever since. I eventually moved to Bella Bella and... Uh, and uh, that's where I am now. Yeah, and you and you work as a, I guess a, a professional. What what? Well, you you list yourself as a biologist in your email signature, but you also have about like five sentences following that, um, <laughs> just just to make us college folks feel bad. I think, um, I think that's why you do it. But um, so I mean, like it's it's not just that you you live in the area and you like science. You you are a you're a PhD candidate uh, through Simon Fraser 
with was it with the Reynolds Lab at Simon's Fraser and Raincoast Hakai Lab at University of Victoria. Um, and you're also a Hakai Fellow. Um, so really what this comes down to is the fact that you are pretty much like a professional researcher slash student slash smart guy. <laughs> right. Well, the first two are, are verifiable. Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm really lucky. I'm in a, a lucky position to sort of um, to be able to uh, pursue um, what, re- what really interests me and, uh, mm-hmm. and to have that be, uh, be my career. Yeah, and I think you uh, uh, kind of did the segue for me there by saying those were verifiable. Um, I, I thought what would be a good uh, starting point in terms of just the discussion on science is talking about um, the scientific method and some of those basic terminologies. Uh, and of course, one of the reasons for my inspiration for, for wanting to talk with you about this right now is the orange plague facing the United States and the way the word fact gets thrown around in that election, <laughs> in addition to the constant media that we're looking at. Um, and, you know, I know I've sent you a couple of things, you've sent me a couple of things, but it's frequently the media takes a study and and we'll get into some of these later, but they sort of extrapolate something or they skip over something. Um, and then you look at policy and you see the same issue. So why don't we talk a bit about like what the scientific method is? I mean, this is stuff that I remember hearing about in grade seven science, but I really don't think, in terms of education, it was ever touched on again in my life. Uh, so, you know, in that basic sense, what is the scientific method? So I guess I guess there's sort of two parts to that. The first, the the scientific method that we hear about um, in undergrad is this this approach uh, to understanding the world where we make a bunch of falsifiable hypotheses. Um, we sort of make a hypothesis about how the world works, and we go out and gather. Um, evidence uh, to see whether or not that hypothesis is true. If if we falsify that hypothesis, we sort of move on to the next one. Um, and 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 by falsify, I just mean that we find evidence uh, that contradicts um, that 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 given hypothesis. So, um, and that's sort of the the I think the, the the abbreviated version of what the scientific method is. But but how science actually works, I think, is maybe a bit of a different uh, beast. So. Um, how science works in practicality is um, through the peer review process, through publication, um, where, and, and this is more when, when someone, you know, when you hear in the media that a study has just been released, uh, it, it means more that it's followed this uh, peer review process, which tends to use falsifiable hypotheses, but it's a completely different beast with many other checks and balances, uh, which I'd be happy to, to talk a little bit more about if um if that's sort of the direction you're you're curious about. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think, and again, that's, you know, even talking about falsifiable hypothesis, um, and this is one that, you know, when, when you've had a few and you get that guy at the bar who says evolution is just a theory, um, and uh, you talk about evidence, well, I saw this, therefore, um, you know, like, and it's, it's, again, it's such a broad subject and it's so nuanced, and I, I kind of want to ask all the questions at the same time. <laughs> Um, and I'm trying to think of the logical way to go about this, but, but what if we look at some of those terms specifically, you know, again, the difference between a hypothesis and a theory, the difference between evidence and a fact, just, you know, and I think what makes it hard to understand is that these have everyday uses, uh, for most people that aren't necessarily true 
in science, or they're not accurate reflected in scientific definitions. Um, so what, like, let's, uh, you know, I think the best example is probably going to be uh, um, a hypothesis versus theory and what the difference is and why theory isn't necessarily what we think it is. Okay, right. So I, I guess in, in science, um, a theory in a lot of ways is, is sort of an, an explanation of how phenomena work, and it's an explanation that has been uh, tested multiple times and has not yet been falsified. Um, and so it's not sort of, I think the more colloquial term of, of theory is just almost a guess. Uh, whereas in, in, in science, um, theory has, has been tested multiple times and has yet to be disproven. So an example of that is, you know, evolution uh, through natural selection. Um, but I guess, you no, know, to back up a step, I, I think one of the, maybe one of the differences in, um, in sort of facts just bandied about as opposed to actually being tested. Uh, I think maybe one way to get at that is, is, is just a quick description of how scientific um, the sort of scientific enterprise works, at least scientific publishing. So, so for me, when, when I'm doing a study, for example, what I have to do, or any scientist, any working scientist, um, for, for our work to be considered science, it needs to be published. And, and so what this means is that, you know, when you hear in the press that a study has just come out, it, it, it means that it's a scientific paper has just come out. And a scientific paper is this sort of, um, uh, almost a formulaic way of conveying uh, um, a study or a scientific approach. And it begins with an introduction. And this introduction is basically where we summarize all the research that has happened previously on the subject. It kind of contextualizes what we're doing. Um, and this is really important because it allows science to build on itself. You don't have study after study saying, you know, bears eat fish. We already know that bears eat fish. Um, and you sort of deal with that in your introduction if you were doing a study on bears and fish, for example. Um, you, you move on from the, uh, the introduction, you describe your methods, very, so what you are actually doing. You, you describe them uh, very openly. So anyone reading your study knows exactly what you did. Um, and importantly, you describe them uh, to the extent that someone else could replicate it. They could do the exact same experiment as you um, and see if they came up with the same results. Then you describe your results, basically what happened in the experiment, and your conclusions where you talk about what it all means, what those results mean. Um, and so this is a really transparent approach to doing science. Once you've done this, uh, that's not all. I, I don't just write this up and, and put it online. It then gets submitted for peer review. Uh, and this process is key. So with peer review, these studies get sent out to uh, a panel of experts in the area I don't get to choose the panel as a scientist. That's chosen by the journal. Um, and the panelists don't even know who each other are. So it's all done independently, typically anonymously. And they'll go through the paper and they'll make sure that, you know, that the introduction that you've seen, that you've included all the relevant previous studies, you haven't sort of cherry picked um, certain studies or you haven't missed important studies that, that, uh, that, that have um, relevance to what you're doing. They make sure that your approaches are, uh, defendable, that they're rigorous, that they're, they're appropriate. And then they make sure that any sort of the conclusions that you've reached in the study are actually supported by your results. Um, so you're not just sort of making these wild claims uh, that are unsupported with evidence. And then this, so this peer review process happens and then these reviews are binding. So they're not just sort of friendly suggestions as, as a scientist, 
you'll get a report back from these peer reviewers and you have to address every single issue that they might have um, uncovered in your, your report. Uh, you have to either address that by, by making edits to your paper, by changing your methods, by including new studies, or at least by responding in great detail uh, why their suggested edit um, is perhaps not needed. So this provides, um, this is a very lengthy process. It can be fairly grueling a scientist to go through, uh, but it provides a certain level when a study finally comes out, you know that it's been done in a consistent, open and transparent fashion, and you know that it's been subjected to this peer review process where experts have absolutely, uh, with the finest tooth comb available, gone through every aspect of the study. And peer review isn't perfect. Um, certainly, the errors do happen, but it's just this very high bar that's set. Um, that there's a certain level of assurance that, that we have when a study comes out that it's gone through this quality control. And then subsequently, other scientists can go because um, it's released to the, the public. Other scientists can evaluate for themselves your methods, your results, um, and might find that actually you made a mistake and they could then subsequently publish. Um, and this is how science develops. Uh, errors might be caught down the line. So, so all that to say that when, when we're talking about um, sort of evidence generated from scientific studies, there's all these steps, there's all these checks and balances that give it a certain level of um, credibility and of rigor. And it doesn't mean it's perfect. And it doesn't mean that there might be mistakes. There's, there's, Science is continually self-correcting, uh, but it's very different than if someone, as you said, says, well, I saw this happen, uh, therefore X, Y, and Z. It's very different than someone just making a statement uh, without having to back it up with substantial evidence that is then verified um, externally. Well, and that's something that, um, you know, in, in my role uh, as an advocate, I struggle with is, is explaining this to people um, and, and not sounding like a jerk when I say it's like, I understand what you saw, but your one example does not make a behavior or does not make a pattern. Um, and, and that need for these grand scale things. And, and the other issue that comes up, of course, uh, within the studies, and this is something I believe you've, you've looked at yourself. Uh, and I've spoken with a, a few other folks on Defender Radio uh, regarding is the idea that one study does not make a fact. Um, so, and this, I think this is maybe, especially in wildlife, when a lot of things aren't looked at repeatedly uh, the way they would be in, in some other issues or some other areas, is where we start to see a lot of issues come up. Um, so, you know, studying, and a for instance, uh, uh, grizzly bear populations in British Columbia so you can have one study that says there are 17 grizzly bears and everyone who reads that can say, then that is the fact of the matter. But as you said, the, like you either have to show that that is wrong or kind of find another way of looking at it. What do we call that, that part of the process? And is that something that is actively encouraged um, within the scientific community? So the part of the process of um, sort of verifying previous studies, is that, is that yes, what or, or attempting to falsify them? Well, one, I mean, one of the terms for that um, is just replication. So going out and uh, which doesn't happen often enough for sure, but going out and just trying to duplicate a study completely. So for instance, in a given, if you're trying to estimate how many bears there were in a given population, 
um, perhaps uh, you would go and do the study again. That's a bit of a complicated example because the population size might have actually changed uh, between the studies. But, uh, but, but basically trying to repeat um, exactly what another, um, what another scientist did um, to see if you get similar results uh, is, is one way that you can start to build more of a body of knowledge on a subject. Um, but then, you know, for the example of, 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 of trying to understand how populations work again, um, you start to get, maybe you've done some analyses in one population to understand what drives that population. What is it that determines if that population grows or shrinks? Um, what you might have is that's one study, as you said, and in that one study, you might come with potential, uh, potential explanations of what might be driving the population in that one area. As you start to have more and more of these studies across multiple areas, you start to, again, get this body of knowledge um, that, that might start to point towards more generalities, more, more features that are uh, shared among these different studies that then helps to build a broader, a broader understanding. Well, yeah, and, and the, the part of that that I was thinking about uh, uh, prior to our call was how I, I asked you, um, you know, I sent you a couple of things via email, and uh, and this is in part what I respect about you and what bothers me about good scientists like you is when I say, I want your opinion on this. And you simply say, I don't know enough about it to offer an opinion. Um, so, again, you know, I respect that because I, I think it's the right answer to give and should be given more frequently. But that media part of me goes, I don't care. Give me a good quote. <laughs> um, and I think that's maybe what we don't see in science, in, in popular media, or in policy statements, is that the simple fact that we don't always know, and especially we don't know what we don't know. Um, how, how does that get factored in to, um, you know, if we go back to our, our bear study, you know, how do we know that um, we are asking all of the right questions, or that we are including all of the right variables? How do we, how do we possibly incorporate all of those different things uh, without realistically going batty, trying to figure it out. That's a tricky. So how do we know if we're answering the right questions? I think that there's um, a bit of a subjective element to that answering the right questions for what? <laughs> um, uh, so, I, and, and I think that's an important thing that we have to keep in mind as well is that often when we hear about uh, science in the media, um, or, or when politicians are talking about science, it's often science in the context of a given policy option, uh, whether it you know be hunting of a species um, or, or across across fields. There's a there's a preferred policy option that a politician is is pushing for, for example, um, and they'll say, well, th this is a science based decision, uh, and really inherent in that is, is teasing apart, well, what in these decisions is actually based on science and what can science actually answer in these decisions and what is ultimately subjective. Uh, and I think what's really important is to really separate those into saying, well, well, if we're talking about hunting a population, for example, science will never tell us whether we should or should not hunt a population. Science can't do that. It's not what science is for. Science sort of tells us how the world works. It, it, it's, a, it's a tool. It's a tool to tell us how the world works. Um, to give us some evidence, not the only one, uh, and to to help inform us of of how it might work in the future, to make informed 
predictions, but it doesn't tell us what's right or wrong. And so, you know, it might be able to tell us this population is likely to decline at the current rate of hunting. That might be one example. Whether that's right or wrong, is, is that's a value decision and that's not one for science to answer. Um, so as soon as, I guess one way to put it is as soon as the word should is in there, in any statement, uh, I think it's it's worthwhile to pause and say, is this a question science can even answer? And that's, that's very interesting, uh, again, to hear because you also then have um, this ongoing debate in the scientific community. And I know it can, it can get very personal and in the, the realm of career advancement can get very dangerous is asking the should questions. Uh, and realistically, should there be a, an amount of advocacy by scientists? Should there be ethical questions by scientists? Or should scientists only look at the data? Um, is that something that, you know, in a general scientific education at the, the undergraduate through doctoral or postgraduate level gets discussed? Is, is there training for how to handle that should? Uh, I think it would, I, I don't know that I can answer what uh, sort of across the board, whether that, that gets addressed. I think it would probably really depend from school to school. See, there you go with not uh, answering the question on... again. I want a sweeping statement. <laughs> <Kyle>. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I was, I, I was certainly lucky enough to have some, some great teachers in my undergrad and in my continuing degree who do think a lot about these topics and who talk about them. Um, the role of, uh, of, of scientists, there's sort of some who would say that scientists should just sort of publish, um, in journals and that anything beyond that is beyond the realm of science others who would argue pretty passionately that, um, scientists are often the most informed people on certain topics. And so it's their responsibility to make sure that, uh, the sort of, uh, what they know gets out there, um, but uh, but does, yeah, I think that this is certainly addressed in, in a lot of uh, a lot of good. Anyways, um, uh, teachers will touch on this in education. I think it's probably increasingly being addressed. Um, but I don't know that there's any specific right or wrong answer. I myself work for Raincoast Conservation, which is an informed advocacy organization. We we do advocacy, and it's science-based advocacy. So we do a lot of our own research. Um, uh, or we collate uh, peer-reviewed research of others to come to conclusions um, on what the science shows on different conservation issues, and then and then advocate that that uh, informed decisions are made based on that. So um, that's the kind of organization that I that I personally feel quite comfortable working for. But um, again, I think that that's uh, something that every scientist has to figure out for themselves, and hopefully in an informed way. Well, and you know, it's interesting with the media. Um, there's the ongoing. Uh, conversation about how to be unbiased and how, um, well, you know, this media organization is liberal and this one's conservative, this one's pro-science, this one's anti-science. Um, and of course, there are trends like that. But what I've always thought myself is that everyone, you know, regardless of your field or training, has a bias. It's then a matter of acknowledging that bias and maybe not necessarily correcting for it, but simply being aware enough of it to see if it is influencing what you're doing. Um, and I think that's something that we're, we're struggling with as a, a public body in North America is that level of acknowledgement of bias and then trust because, and this, 
this is one of the the very difficult um, subjects is that science can give us the data, but it's not always scientists who are then interpreting that data for us. Or if they are, it's with an inherent bias. And it feels like sometimes we get to the point where we simply don't want to trust or we don't know if we can trust science anymore. Because one person reads the numbers this way and another person reads them that way. Which one is right? Um, And of course, without being able to fully read some of these reports, um, you know, (laughs) how, how can we interpret this? How can we say... Um, that we're relying on science when there is this broad disagreement on what the science says. So how can we sort of address that as a public body and have faith? uh, Well, I guess that's the exact wrong word. Have confidence that science is reliable, uh, even though we see such discrepancy in representation of you know, the results of a study or uh, uh, or of how it should influence policy. Right. I, I guess I guess one thing to note is that um, I think the the actual amount of scientific disagreement on really substantive uh, substantive issues, I think is a lot less than um, might be sometimes conveyed. Um so I mean I guess that there's there's been a few cases where where there's there's there seems to be this journalistic uh, requirement to have a balanced story where you present um, two different sides of a given story, even if the, the regardless of whether the overwhelming weight of evidence is on one of those sides. And so I think in part um, the sort of this idea that there's complete scientific agreement uh, scientific disagreement on um, on these issues, I, I, I don't know too many cases where that that disagreement is actually true in terms of rigorous uh, peer-reviewed scientific data coming to completely opposite conclusions. Um, so, is this maybe something that the media encourages for the sake of of having um, you know the story? Is so, for instance, me asking you, um, you know, based on the number of oh, and actually we've had this conversation based on the number of grizzly bears. Should there be this kind of hunting in this region? And your answer is never yes or no. Well, exactly. So again, there is that there's that should element is in there. So the the the, the example, the one study um, I think you're referring to is uh, in, in 2013 we had a study in PLOS One looking at uncertainty in population and. Um, different population attributes, uncertainty in, in the, the grizzly bear hunt in British Columbia. Uh, and what we found in that study is that the current approach to management imbues a lot of risk uh, to populations across the province, a lot of risk of there being overkills. In other words, killing too many bears um, and populations potentially declining. And that's what the science says. The science doesn't say, therefore, there should not be a hunt because it's a value judgment whether we should accept a risk of populations declining. Um, and so I think that that can then get sort of tricky where um, you might then have, uh, yeah, I, 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 the, the, if the should is there, if there's this implicit should that the conservation of the species is priority number one, um, then the science would should suggest that in that case, you'd want to reduce the hunting pressure. Um, because if your objective is 
you know, insure against, you know, uh, really reduce the risk of, of population decline because that's your conservation objective. And then the science would suggest, yes, this is how you would do it. But again, that the science itself isn't saying, well, the hunt should stop or the hunt should decrease um, because science doesn't tell us what we should or should not do. But it can inform once we've decided, you know, as a society, what our, our objectives are. That's when science can be quite helpful. Um, there can be some, so with the grizzly bear as an example, uh, after that study came out, there was in the media, there's a bit of a, a story that, well, there was just this, this disagreement in population levels. I, I think one of the um, headlines, I think it was from Globe and Mail said that, that I can't remember which paper, but said that uh, scientists duel over grizzly bear numbers in British Columbia. That just wasn't the case. Um, and the, the, it was potentially spun that way, uh, either unintentionally, maybe intentionally, maybe unintentionally, I'm not sure, um, by, by uh, the province. But uh, in essence, the province was saying, well, we have this, this other study where we show that these are the best estimates possible for the populations. Um, and so this was then shown to say, ah, well, there's this disagreement over the population numbers. But in fact, in that particular case, we used the exact same numbers as were shown in the uh, the provinces study. So there was sort of this, this perception that there was a disagreement in the science, but there wasn't, there wasn't at all. Um, so what uh, the remedy for that, uh, I'm, 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 that's a, that's a, maybe a journalistic question, not a scientific one, but, um, but I think that it's an example where maybe it seemed like there was disagreement in the scientific community, but certainly there wasn't disagreement in the literature um, these two studies, in fact, use the exact same data. See, and that's, I think, what's uh, kind of the, the crux of what we're talking about is this, to you, it seems very clear what's happening. And when you explain it to me, it becomes very clear that you are not saying these numbers are wrong. You're saying, what about this other factor, maybe? Um, you know, the question is not about the data, but in how it's potentially presented or you know, in the questions asked in the should, not necessarily including that original science. Um, so it's very subtle what you're looking at, but the media likes black and white. Um, and I think the public likes it too. They like to be told. Uh, and, you know, the classic example is, you know, are eggs healthy for us? Um, through the generations, a different part of the egg either has or has not been healthy. Um, when in fact the answer is depends on what you ask because an egg itself is not inherently healthy or unhealthy, um, but how it's prepared and what parts and how frequently and what your current health and, you know, all of these other factors. Um, and I, uh, what I wanted to refer to in this, and I, I did send you this quickly as an email and a lot of people are familiar with it is the red wine uh, a glass of red wine being equal to an hour of exercise. Um, this came out late last year, late 2015, early 2016. And it was a study. It was based, So the actual study was looking at a very specific compound and how it influences athletic growth for uh, rats. Um, so if they have more of this, do they perform better athletically if they have less of it? Um, it happens that this compound is also found in most red wine. And somehow from the peer-reviewed study, which from what I, I, you know, in a cursory glance had absolutely no flaws whatsoever, turned into 
a glass of red wine is the same as an hour, as an hour at the gym. Um, I tried to track what happens, and I can't. Um, there, just somewhere along the line, someone used that in a headline, and it became the story. Um, but again, when I look at that, and I think this is interesting as a journalist, when you look at that, I, I don't know what the study says necessarily because it uses all kinds of words I don't know. It talks about compounds I've never heard of. I can I have learned, you know, thanks to people like yourself who have sort of taught me over the last few years how to look at some of these things or what questions to ask when looking at a study. So the subject matter is rats, not humans. It's a compound, not actually red wine. So those are sort of like two red flags. But most journalists look at this and you have no idea what it actually says and have to rely on someone to interpret it. So how do we, I'm, is there, is this something that the scientific community should be looking at or is it something that the public through education and I, and I mean from, you know, grade five onward education needs to have a better job done with? Is that an example of potential failings of our understanding of science? Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't offer uh, um, a magic Solution to this is uh, this. This goes beyond my expertise, but I think in a case like that, uh, you're dealing with um, what we call extrapolating beyond the data. So obviously, people took, uh, like you said, each step seemed a bit logical, but it, it what the, the extrapolation, the conclusions that that came to, went well beyond what the study actually showed. Um, I think some potential ways that this could be addressed. One of the things is science journalism is key. It's such an important field. It's one that, from my understanding, um, has perhaps uh, lost a lot of funding recently, but hopefully new media is sort of filling the, the void um, that, that might have been left from traditional media. But science journalism is absolutely crucial. Journalists who have a really good foundation in science, uh, that you were able to read the study and, and sort of see all these pieces you just mentioned, uh, without a foundation in science, without an understanding in science, I don't know if you would have caught any of that, and clearly a lot of journalists didn't, unfortunately. Uh, but I guess another piece of the equation as to how to um, how to deal with this kind of stuff would be um, to just ask the scientist. I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, as scientists, we are often paid for by the public um, through grants and whatnot. We we deal with issues of important public interest. And I think that um, that it's absolutely fair to assume that scientists would answer questions about the work they've done. And many scientists are, of course, quite keen to share the work they've done. Um, and I'm, I'm sure, I'm not familiar with a specific case, but if the, the scientist in question uh, had been asked, you know, does this mean a glass of wine um, <laughs> equates to an hour at the gym or whatever that, that statement was, I'm, I'm sure they would have been quite happy to, to clarify um, that that wasn't well i'm personally looking for the one that says a glass of whiskey or a bottle is the same as an hour at the gym uh um, yeah, right. looking for that go. scientist right now but uh <laughs> you know it, the next part of this too that we i think needs to be talked about and this is again we're veering into should but it's the need for the scientific foundation when we then have these conversations when we look at policy particularly in my narrow field of conflict um someone will point to a study and say, we have scientific evidence that, and then fill in the blank, you know, coyotes eat babies, uh, uh, bears break down houses, wolves blow down entire farms, whatever. 
And fair enough, they have a study that indicates that. But, and this is where it gets confusing, I think, for those who have never spent time trying to research through studies uh, or trying to, to peruse through a journal. And, and you kind of touched on this, is that science is constantly evolving. Um, and there, there is no, there is probably never going to be a definitive outside of mathematics, a definitive answer to any one question, because there will always be another way to ask that question. Um, there is always the possibility that someday it could be proven, uh, wrong through, through repetition. So when we talk again, we'll say coyotes eating babies, they point to a study from a university peer reviewed in 1978. And if I don't have access, if I don't have training, if I don't have all of this other stuff, um, then how am I to know that there may be 18 other studies that came after that uh, that indicate the opposites? So it's I, I'm not sure what my question is. I'm complaining right now, and that's not very professional. Um, but <laughs> more or less, it's, it's how do we, the public, the advocates, combat someone who has that experience, you know, the evil empire scientists who holds up his one study as evidence, um, even though there may be all kinds of other evidence that we simply don't have access to. What is the best way for someone to, to learn about that, to find out about that, or to challenge that there is only one study? Right, well, I guess the first uh, piece is to be uh, to have healthy skepticism, especially if if someone is using science to advocate for a particular policy option, uh, be skeptical. And regardless of um, what direction that policy uh, option might be, um, is to be skeptical. And and you know if they're citing a study from 1978, uh, then you might fairly question whether there uh, might be other other pieces to it. Um, how you would uh, address that, how you would deal with that. I mean, as, as I mentioned earlier, as a scientist, it's really important if we're doing research to look at all the existing evidence. Uh, and we have peer reviewers that, that um, uh, that's at least one step uh, that can help to protect against us. Sort of what you're describing is basically cherry picking. You're looking at one piece of evidence and ignoring absolutely everything else. Um, the peer review process is one way that can help to weed that out. Um, and so, I mean, uh, I, again, this is going beyond my expertise completely, but in, given a situation like this, I think one, one thing you could do would be to ask other experts, ask other scientists um, if there are other pieces of evidence, if there's other studies that have come out recently. Another thing um, would be to actually take a look at what the, the the scientists themselves did um, to, to actually look at the approaches taken. There, there's a great review that just came out uh, just this year, uh, led by uh, Adrian Trevis, um, and it was called Predator Control Should Not Be a Shot in the Dark. And what they did in this paper is they actually looked um, at a scenario you're talking about, which is uh, this idea that one study says one thing, another says quite another. And what they did is they looked at a whole bunch of them, and they went in there and they, they really um, assessed the, the quality of the um, of the actual studies being undertaken. Uh, what were the methods used? How rigorous, how rigorous were they? Um, and this was a really interesting study and that they found that many, many, many of these little sort of one-off studies 
uh, certainly didn't meet sort of a gold standard. Um, there was there was a, a number of deficiencies in them. So work like this can be really helpful where someone goes out and does a meta-analysis or an analysis looking at all the existing studies out there and tries to um, uh, do almost an audit of them, an audit of what the knowledge is out there, what the state of the knowledge is, how credible it is and whatnot. And so um, in, in terms of uh, predator control for, for conflict, this was a really great review to look at to, to help sort of tease apart um, some of these potentially conflicting results and to see why they might be and to see sort of the, the credibility of the studies generating these these conflicting results. Yeah, I actually spoke with Adrian about that. Um, oh, perfect. And one thing he, exp- yeah, <laughs> one thing he expressed that I found very interesting was how few studies there had actually been over, I think it was what, 18 years or something, he, he had sort of segmented and there had only, there had been less than one per year in his study range. And he said, like, if you look at almost any other field of biology, um, you know, you're looking at multiple per month sometimes, um, constantly challenging and re-challenging hypotheses and theories, um, and always looking at new angles. But for some reason, with conflicts, it's kind of a, yeah, we'll do one. You know, a year and a half later, someone else comes along with a different maybe idea and does it. And one of the things we do have to look at is funding um, and how that influences what gets covered in science. And that is, of course, the other question. And uh, in the media, we dealt with this. And one of the reasons I left the media was how often I had to deal with this is the the person who has the purse strings. Um, you know, the, the classic follow the money line uh, uh, from Woodward and Bernstein is that something that the public should be aware of in science? And I can think of a couple of examples, and I'm talking literally a couple, um, where the only funding a scientist ever got was from a lobby group. Right. Um, you know, and the results always showed what the lobby group would want. So, you know, my right. paranoia, uh, you know, rings a few bells there. But is that a question we should be asking? Where is the money coming from for the science? Yeah, I think that that's a, a good source of healthy skepticism, um, and and I think you know it's a good uh, a good reminder of the importance of independent science, um, the importance of people able to go and ask questions where they're not constrained. And because you you received funding from a given organization doesn't mean necessarily you're constrained in what you can publish, but there's it's certainly suggested that that might be the case. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think that that just really highlights the importance of independent science, independent scientists, scientists who are able to um, speak freely on what they have found. Um, um, and and it, I think that it's quite fair to have a healthy skepticism in cases where that is clearly not the case, where the scientists are clearly not independent um, of uh of these constraints you talk about. Yeah. And I think it's, it's very interesting too. What I've seen some journals do um, is in the reports, uh, both published, you know, in prints and online, there is a spot where they list, here's where the funding was from with like exacting details. They don't say how much, but they, they say we receive funding from these organizations. And they've also done, um, I've seen sort of, it's almost like a declaration of bias, in that, you know, I work for this specific lab, 
Um, so it's you're not just a name. You you sort of recognize, as you stated, you know, you work for Raincoast. Um, and that is apparent in what you do. And I think you declare it as well. Um, because it's it's almost sort of like fair play for someone reading the study to have that information ahead of time. Yeah, I think that that's, that's certainly the norm. Certainly every paper I've been involved in, you have to, uh, or every journal that I publish in, you have to declare absolutely who you work with, uh, where your funding comes from. And yeah, that's, that's uh, one of the cornerstones of science is transparency. Uh, and so um, good science should be as transparent as possible. And, uh, and so that's, that's sort of part and parcel with that is being transparent with who you work with, who you get your money from, et cetera. Um, most of them will also ask uh, if there's conflicts of interest and uh, you are sort of obligated to disclose if you do have any conflicts of interest, um, be it through funding or, or, or for whatever means. Um, you're certainly supposed to be disclosing that for obvious reasons. The concept that we have to be constantly challenging science. We have to constantly ask what we know, what we want to know, and how we're asking it. Um, you know, I'm very fortunate in that I also, like you, get to do what I love. I get to talk about this stuff, read about it, write about it, um, and do it for an organization I believe in. And, um, you know, I think it's one of the reasons we have so much in common. Um, but I also have access to you. You know, when I have a question about something or if I have a question about, you know, ethics in uh, 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 evolutionary psychology, I can literally text message Mark Beckoff. I, I am very fortunate to be able to do that. But, um, you know, if I try not to or, or, or many other people who are in my position, um, we don't have those resources necessarily. So as we move forward. And we're challenging our policies and we're challenging our belief systems and we're challenging our politics. How can we, uh, especially those of us who were maybe not the biggest fans of traditional schooling, uh, to put it mildly, sort of pull into that science, that very strong system of checks and balances, of asking questions, of healthy skepticism that we've been talking about, and apply it to science-based decisions. Again, when we look at wildlife policy, when we look at um, conservation efforts, how can those of us without the backgrounds and without the resources necessarily pull from that system to, to challenge what we see in front of us? I mean, I think the key is to, to ask lots of questions. Uh, I guess, again, the healthy skepticism, maybe that's sort of expected from a scientist to say this, but uh, again, firstly, to see uh, is, is what I'm seeing that, that's being ascribed to science, is that something science can actually answer? Uh, because that's the first, re to me, when, when, you, when I hear a politician use the word science-based, it's a red flag um, <laughs> that, that, that science is almost being used to justify something. Uh, is often a, a bit of a red flag um, and, and makes me say, oh, is it? Okay, well, what is the science? And so I think asking the questions is really important. If, in fact, they're saying, no, the data do suggest we should do this, then the question is, okay, well, what are these data? How did you get these data? Um, and I think, I, you know, I, I don't think that it's a matter of, oh, well, it's science, and so as non-scientists, there's no way we can understand it. I don't think that's true at all. I think that scientists should absolutely be available. I think increasingly um, scientists, maybe it's not even increasing, maybe it's always been this case, we're, we're almost without exception absolutely thrilled to talk about our work. Um, 
that you know this is this work that we've done we invest our lives into uh to you know a study that you see finally come out has often taken years and years and years of work most scientists i know are thrilled to talk about it um so i think that when it comes down to it if there's if there's confusion about what was actually done in the study i think it's that most scientists would be quite happy to talk about it and so if a journalist is wondering well, well how did this number come to be uh, I think getting in touch with the scientists is a very good way to do it. And then we as scientists, um, then th on the science side, it'd be, of course, uh, very helpful for scientists to have um, perhaps some training in science communication, which is unfortunately often lacking, at least in the undergrad level. Uh, but but additional training in how to uh, get behind the jargon and to, to actually explain what's been done in a given study is super helpful. Um, but I think, yeah, ultimately, uh, if, if a scientist cannot explain what they've done, how they've gotten to the number, um, in a way that someone outside their field can at least understand the gist of it, uh, then there's a big problem there. And so, so to, to back up, I think if someone um, were to, again, see that, you know, there's this, this claim being made, it's this ostensibly a science-based claim, but they can't get an explanation from anyone as to how science actually came to that number, what the science was behind it, what was actually done, um, then in cases like that, I would be extremely skeptical. To learn more about Kyle or his work with Raincoast Conservation Foundation, visit raincoast.org. That's it for this week. I'm glad all of you joined us, and I hope you enjoy the new look and sound of Defender Radio. Shoot me your feedback via email, michael at thefurbears.com, or on Twitter, at Defender Radio. This is Michael Howie for Defender Radio reminding you to stay informed and stay strong.